Welcome to Leading with Purpose. I'm your host, Dennis Morton, founder and principal of Morton Brown Family Wealth. And in today's conversation, we're going to explore a fascinating phase of an entrepreneur's journey where the ideas, skills, and innovation that drove business success are then turned outward for the benefit of the community. After building companies and sparking innovation, many entrepreneurs start to think about how to better their communities through commitments of time, talent, and treasure. Whether serving on the board of a nonprofit or raising money for a cause close to their hearts, successful business owners bring a unique perspective to community leadership. In this episode, we are going to learn how an entrepreneur's upbringing shaped both her career and how she serves her community, the business leadership lessons that can be applied to serving on a nonprofit board, and how engagement with a community organization can turn into advocacy for the unique challenges of our time. If you want your leadership to be impactful in all of your endeavors, you're going to love this conversation. On the Leading with Purpose podcast, I interview a spectrum of entrepreneurs and thinkers to learn the principles of leadership from a diverse perspective. My goal is to help you use these ideas to make more confident decisions in your profession and in your community. Today, I'm speaking with Susan Yee, CEO of Active Data. Susan is a renowned entrepreneur and community leader. She began her career in the cable television industry, overseeing all operations, marketing, and contract negotiation with cable television programmers such as CNN, ESPN, HBO, and MTV. She was involved in a $100 million merger in the mid-1990s and has negotiated patent and trademark matters, software licensing, company acquisitions, and employee agreements. She previously served or is currently serving on the Lehigh Valley Health Network Board of Trustees, Team PA Board of Directors, Executive Committee and Board of Directors of C-SPAN, Lehigh University Board of Trustees, and the Board of Directors of Lehigh Valley Public Media, where she will soon assume the role of Board Chair. Susan, thanks so much for joining me today. That's a truncated resume for a robust career, but I think there's much more to explore. So uh, how about we dive right in? Thanks for joining me. Oh, thanks for having me, Dennis. Such a pleasure to be here. So for some background on you, maybe we can start about two crucibles of development. So childhood and then the first years of entrepreneurship. So let's start about the early years. Tell me about family life and how that influenced your career. Okay. Well, thank you for allowing me to go through my family history. My parents uh, came from China and I'm, I guess I'm, pr- I'm very proud to say I'm first generation Asian Chinese. They uh, started a cable television firm here in the Lehigh Valley in the 1960s. And I, I would have to say my mom must have been the first tele-remote worker because she worked from home and did all the bookkeeping and financing from a home office where she let the, my two brothers and I just run around the house uh, whenever she had a, an important phone call. <laughs> it was <laughs> Uh, Anyway, she um, actually kept me busy. My entrepreneur life started, I think, when I was five years old to keep me busy. She would pull out a red stamp ink pad and say, "Okay, here, stamp these bills past due for me. So I started stamping bills past due at age five. Oh, my gosh. And clearly when you're uh, and it's a generational cultural thing, too. Uh, my parents felt like kids had to work for the family and contribute for the family to the family. So uh, we were raised to uh, have careers with a cable television firm. Wow. In fact, my parents were very upset when I was a sophomore at Lehigh University because I snuck away and got a job at what was then Bambergers, now known as Macy. And they <laughs> yes. were very upset with me because I, I wanted to work outside of the family business for a little while to get that experience. How did that influence your choice of educational path? Did, did you feel that there was a certain inclination to stay in a particular 
realm. You're a Lehigh graduate. So how, how did you choose your educational path? Uh, well, my parents didn't go to college, so they didn't shepherd me through that process at all. You know, the, these days you can apply to 15 schools. Right. So your kids get accepted at the ones they, they want to go to. Uh, I applied to three schools, Penn State University, University of Texas, and Lehigh University. Texas, might you might think, why? We had a lot of relatives there. Uh-huh. Uh, and so uh, I got accepted at all three, uh, but Lehigh was my number one pick. I got accepted early decision. And I actually I actually applied as a political science major. Ah, and where did you, and how'd you end up? I ended up being a double major in finance and marketing with a minor in international relations. Okay, so th- this is interesting. So we have the, the, the cable media experience for your parents' company. We have the finance and marketing. Emerging from the Lehigh experience, what did you want to do with that? How did you see the application? Well, you know, looking back now, I think it tells you why I do what I do now, right? The business, finance, and marketing side definitely helped in the cable television world. The entrepreneur side of my family business put that in my DNA. And that's how I just, you know, love startups. I love starting things. I love being a charter anything because I think establishing the framework for success is is just fun and it's great and very rewarding when you see the outcome. Uh, My political science initial entry into Lehigh uh, warrants my role at Team Pennsylvania right now, which is a public-private sector foundation for the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Uh, Four secretaries of uh, the governor's cabinet serve on it, uh, education, labor and industry, DCED, and agriculture. The governor co-chairs with a private sector co-chair. And so my interest in terms of understanding how the public sector works and can have a great influence on the private sector, uh, really kind of has an intersection with my nonprofit and entrepreneur and corporate side. When did that start for you? You had a success in the 1990s and then were leaning into the internet age and kind of identified some opportunity there. Was your involvement in some of the community initiatives simultaneous to that? Or was that something that, that evolved over time or was it an epiphany for you? Uh, well, you know, the cable television world is is exciting. It's evolving. It's way different now than it was uh, back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Uh, and cable te- television provided a way to get out into the community and work with your community to communicate what was going on. Mm. You know, local news and information and sports was relegated only to the large broadcasters back in the day. And high school sports still is a very attractive channel on the local cable television operations. And so we took advantage of local programming and local information back then, which then meant that getting involved in the community was really important. And so my first board, I was uh, invited by Minna Hyman of Hyman Jewelers and actually Matt Hyman's uh, mom. Mm -hmm. So she invited me to my first board, the Pennsylvania Stage Company, uh, which was then run by Ellen Gallardi Baker. Alan Baker Gillardi. Um, so I served on that board for a while. And that was in my, I think when I was only 30, um, I started in late twenties, early thirties. And one of the things about serving on nonprofit boards, which was enlightening to me and really great in professional development was that you're able to be outside of your business organization, working with peers mm. towards a common goal. And that was really 
uh, helpful for me in my professional development because when you when you work for an organization, you know there's there's a, a corporate ladder, there's an organizational structure. You work within that structure, and it's the only structure you know. Mm-hmm. But when you start volunteering or working on on other boards outside of your company, you get the experience of diverse thought and industries, and you're able to learn how to navigate uh, the advocacy or the the tactics and the operations and the, the strategy for a nonprofit. So that's how it started when I, I got that first board position and one board position led to another board position. And, you know, I, I think what's happened in my life is that uh, I realized that if, if you are able to build success in your life, whether monetarily or, or lifestyle or whatever it is, it's so important to give back. Mm-hmm. Because it's it's a full circle. I mean, everything you do impacts you. It's the butterfly effect, right? So it impacts you and impacts the community you live in and impacts the world. So everything that you do has some kind of influence. And you know, I don't like to just be a placeholder. Right. I don't know if you can tell, but I'm not. I don't like being a placeholder. <laughs> Picked up on that. And so, why not take advantage of the time that you have on this earth to make a difference? Right. Whether it's corporate and uh, you know financially, or whether it's through your community and helping others uh, that that are less fortunate or need a little helping hand. It's so interesting you bring that up about that peer engagement that you get when you sit on a board of directors. One of the best pieces of advice that I received early in my career is always be looking for ways to be have a seat at the table where decision makers are thinking out loud. Because, you know, if you can find where people are making critical decisions, where they're bringing um, a diverse set of experiences and intellect to the table, but that, and that's what you find on a lot of these nonprofit boards, is that you, these, these are leaders who are taking all of their diverse business experiences and bring it to the table on a common cause. And it's been so formative for, for my career and, and how I just think about the world around me. I totally agree. I've had the pleasure of serving with many CEOs of Fortune 500 companies and uh, working with CEOs of local companies and working with uh, managers that are impacting the community in, in ways I was not aware of. And I just learned so much from my fellow board members. So you were invited onto the, the board for the Pennsylvania Stage Company. Later on, how did you go about choosing which organizations you would say yes to? And, and how did you navigate your involvement in various organizations over time? Some of the um, associations and boards I served on were industry related. So, uh, you know, one of the earliest boards I served on was the Pennsylvania Cable Television Association, which is now the Pennsylvania Cable Telecommunications Association, I believe. And I chaired the regulatory uh, committee there. And I also was on the executive committee of that board. And again, back to my political science interest at Lehigh and Team Pennsylvania, that being chair of the Regulatory Affairs Committee opened up my eyes in terms of the process, how things work mm-hmm. in government, how regulations get uh, enforced or, or interpreted, and how legislation affects forward thinking and strategies. And so that was one of the ways, you know, a, a clearly a, a board that I helped me with my company. Uh, and then over the years, I mean, I have a, a list of a lot of boards that I've served on over the years, uh, based on that visibility, you know, I was asked to serve on C-SPAN's board. Right. And, you know, did I seek that out? No, I, I was sought out and I was 
honored to serve on that board. Brian Lamb was the CEO at the time. <sighs> Love Brian Lamb. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, oh, he's an amazing man. And I served on the executive committee as well with some of the pioneers and leaders of the cable television industry who are now uh, owners of channels, you know, programmers, uh, telecom providers, internet providers. And so it, it really was very exciting for an Asian woman to be serving uh, with a very male dominated board. Mm. So, you know, I, I was very fortunate to be uh, invited and serving on, on boards like that. Uh, and then, you know, I was happy to be serving on some of these national boards, but then all and state boards, but then at the community level, cable television had a lot of um, influence in terms of being the voice. Right. And so I, I'm guessing that because I had that opportunity to share my influence and my ability to, to communicate some of the, the voices in the area, I served on boards like the Easter Seals and I was on the very first music board or one of the, you know, one of the early music fest board of trustees boards, Da Vinci Center. I've served on a ton of them over the years. Uh, my passion though has become prioritized. Mm. You know, I've had to slim down and pare down uh, the number of boards that I serve on and the leadership roles that I have on those boards because I just don't have enough time. I wish I had more time. There are so many needs out there in the world that you can contribute to. In the past, when you've joined a, a board of directors, do you migrate or gravitate toward a particular committee? You mentioned being on a regulatory committee. Do you say, yeah, you know what, I want to be involved in this particular committee because this is where I think uh, I can offer the most value? Absolutely. I mean, it just happened with Team Pennsylvania. Um, I've been on that board for a few years now, uh, and I served and requested to be on the resource allocation committee because I felt that my expertise and my uh, proactiveness would be helpful in terms of helping to identify where resources would go. Uh, and then subsequently, this, this current year, I asked to serve on the finance committee because I felt that I could make an impact in terms of helping bridge the gap of presentation and helping fellow board members understand the finances of the organization better. And subsequently, then I was asked to be chair of the finance committee. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's very exciting. Uh, I wanted to be on that committee because I want, I felt that I can contribute and provide feedback for the betterment of the organization. Uh, in terms of other committees that I've chaired and served on, I currently chair the community relations committee at Leo Valley Health Network. It's a mm -hmm. committee. And that, that committee is one of my most favorite favorite and most important committees that I serve on. Uh, it oversees the community health needs assessment for the area, and it identifies what health needs there are in the community. And over the last two years or two sessions, um, this committee has identified behavioral health as one of the top five priorities of community need. And that in itself is such a timely topic. Uh, we'll remember the uh, whistleblower testimony in front of Congress uh, slamming Instagram and Facebook, right? Mm -hmm. And the right. effect of social media on adolescent girls. Behavioral health is just such a, a passion of mine to really create awareness and way more support and way more change 
in terms of the resources that are not available and that hopefully we make available and the financial support and the emotional support of family, friends, and the community to support uh, behavioral and mental health illnesses. You're right. That is, it is such a timely topic. And you and I kind of had discussed offline just as parents, how our observations and what we, what we see, uh, I'm the, I'm the father of, of three daughters, uh, in addition to a teenage son. And it really is eye-opening to, to see just, this is a, a brave new world that they're living in and operating in. And you wonder how this projects forward. And it's interesting to hear the application of behavioral health be, being an initiative of a community relations committee because it is a lot of outreach. There's a clinical side to it, but tell me about the community relations and what it means to, I'm assuming, find partnership to help solve for behavioral health problems. Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I mean, health networks is specifically Leah Valley Health Network, you know, the largest health network in this community, but health networks in general can't solve the issue of behavioral health support and resources alone, right? Mm -hmm. We need to extend beyond the hospital walls and work with partners. Valley Youth House is a wonderful partner. Mm -hmm. Kids Peace is right in our backyard. There are lots of organizations that um, support psychological services and um, psychiatric services and, and counseling for those in need. So, so in terms of the Community Relations Committee, are we seeing this? It just makes sense because the social determinants of health are outside of the ER you know, opioid addiction, affordable housing, domestic violence. Uh, These are all just a couple of things, homelessness. These are all just a couple of things that, you know, these issues can get you into the ER. And our goal at Leavella Health Network is to do more prevention, right? Because if we can invest in our community to prevent some of these issues, then everyone will be healthier. The outcome will be healthier, which is what a health network school should be. Uh, you know, one of the really scary statistics that, you know, really triggers me is that suicide is the second leading cause of death for people ages 10 through 34. Oh my goodness. Uh, this is, you know, a pre-pandemic stat. Now we've gone through a COVID year of 2020. We're coming out of a pandemic. We're seeing the rise and the introduction of addictive use of social media, which as we are also seeing, Uh, can have uh, tragic health consequences to our youth. You know, you're seeing bullying and and, um, school psychology services uh, in dire need of more resources and support. All of these things are going to to be with us when our kids today become young adults, become middle-aged adults, become geriatric adults. This time in our lives is such a critical time to devote to the awareness and additional changes in regulatory and legislative provider and payer business models that you know, I can't talk enough about it. And, and I'm just hopeful that we can make some substantive change sooner than later. Yeah, I think it's scary to think about the normalization of isolation that's happened in, in this. I, th- I think that's, that's always the thing that, that so much of it is having community, having a sense of engagement with the people around you, with the world around you. And the more isolation that that had to happen out of necessity, you project that forward and it's not good. I mean, we, we even see it in leaders around us, the adult population. You can only imagine what that means for teenagers uh, who are still developing. 
it's a big picture problem that really is very individual. And not everyone is aware of it. I mean, I'm an advocate that, hey, if you have knee surgery and you need physical therapy after that surgery, you know, everyone accepts that as the norm. Mm -hmm. We need to be able to uh, equalize brain therapy as well as any other kind of therapy. I mean, the brain's a, one of our vital organs. So you know, why can't we make that such an important and equalized uh, awareness campaign as any other physical organ that gets damaged? Yeah. I mean, historically, it hasn't been top of mind to teach these tools. Now, granted, there haven't been the, the platforms that are assaulting our, our children's minds every day with social media and everything else historically. But that toolkit, and we, we talk about it in our profession, and we don't teach people good financial habits early on. You know, the personal finance stuff, we're left to learn on our own. Same thing goes for behavioral health. We're left to figure out what, why do we feel so bad? How do we combat that? What are the healthy habits to build in? I'll, I'll never forget late summer in 2020. So we're coming out of the summertime. It's been a pandemic year uh, and went out for a run with my son. And school was starting the next week. It was going to be a hybrid model. You could sense a little bit of anxiety. And I remember him turning to me at the end of the run and saying, Dad, remind me how this feels. And anytime I'm feeling bad, remind me how I feel right now because I feel great coming back from a, a two-mile run. And ever since then, if, if he's feeling a little sluggish or we're both feeling a little off, it's like, hey, let's, hop, let's go on that run a little bit because you, you get the endorphins and it starts kicking in. But I thought, boy, we, we had to we had to go through a lot to figure out that that was a, a tool that we had in our in our kit bag. Right. Oh, right. And, you know, I'm not a clinician or, or by any means an expert in behavioral health. But, you know, the stats are just staggering. You know, one in five U.S. adults experiences mental illness. One in 20 adults experience serious mental illness. Seventeen percent of our youth six to 17 years old experience a mental health disorder. These numbers are I don't. I, I bet they don't go down. I bet it's, this is a silent crisis. Mm -hmm. So, you know, how is that relevant, though, in terms of leadership with purpose? Well, clearly you can tell that's one of my priority purposes, right? Just advocating it. I'm not a clinician. Mm -hmm. So what can I do to help address this huge silent crisis that's out there? Well, I can serve on boards. I can volunteer. I can advocate. I can meet with people that I know. And hopefully, you know, if, you can call it leadership, you can call it advocacy, you can call it what you want. But the more you use your voice and whatever influence you have to change someone's mind or make someone more aware of an issue, you know, you've made an impact. And so you can see with the boards that I serve on, I'm the vice chair of Leo Valley Public Media, which oversees Channel 39 and WLVR, right? So that's, that's a voice. Like Channel 39's goal is to improve or increase civic engagement and also uh, communicate and disseminate information and awareness of, of important issues. So behavioral health hopefully will be on LVPM's radar. I serve on Atlanta University's College of Education, and this COE has been known to be first in the country for the graduate degree in school psychology. And that's a wonderful asset that we have in our own backyard. You know, Leah Valley Health Network clearly is addressing uh, patients that suffer from mental illness. And then the Team Pennsylvania uh, tie-in, while it's not as directly related to behavioral health, you know, just being having access to the public-private sector that wants to make Pennsylvania a better 
place, a more competitive and innovative place to live and work. Clearly, behavioral health is an underlying foundation to make sure that we're as successful as we can be here in Pennsylvania. Come back to the narrowing of focus. It really does seem that there's a common thread now running through your engagement to say that these, these are the things that are meaningful to me and meaningful for the community, and I'm going to channel my energy through fewer and fewer organizations. How did you decide upon that? Was there was an aha moment where you said, listen, this, you know, whether it's behavioral health or, or media or the hospital, how did that process evolve for you? Well, I'm very honored to say I have to turn down invitations a lot to serve on other boards. But for your listeners that are wondering how they can serve on boards and how they can be invited on boards, I recommend when you are in a position of visibility on a board or a community organization, wherever it may be, be proactive, initiate conversation and ask questions and don't be a placeholder Mm -hmm. because then that will beget your energies to help another organization. That's really the key. Mm-hmm. Perhaps because I maybe I, I want to, my mom would call me being nosy. <laughs> she, she's passed, but she would say, you're just being nosy. Uh, I like to ask a lot of questions just so that I can have a better understanding so that I can make recommendations or observations that might be helpful. And so ask lots of questions and, and be engaging and, and be proactive and initiate change. My process with this is that I want to serve and give my time to those organizations that can have the largest impact to my community, to my own life. And that's how I chose to keep these as priorities. I also am on the executive committee of the Broad Street Angels in Philadelphia. It's a union league club. So where I intersect that is that I've made investments in a behavioral health company as well. So it, it all is intersecting. It all ties together. Yes. It does all tie together. I wish I just had more time. I know. It is funny is that you gather the cumulative experiences of a career and suddenly it, the, the picture starts to make sense. You know, all these disparate things that are, and eventually you say, all right, because I'm immediately thinking I'm a visual person person. I think of just this channel, how you have the clinical frontline element of behavioral health all the way through to the communications ability of a media company and, and able to, to say, how do we take this and migrate it out to, into the public sphere? And you really have a grasp on all of that. Yeah, it's exciting. I mean, the company that I invested in is called Neuroflow and uh, started by a, a Really, really talented CEO, Chris Malaro, who served a couple of tours in Afghanistan, suffer, suffers from PTSD. You know, the military rate of suicides has increased 15%. Oh, my goodness. In the recent time. And so, of course, when he made that presentation, knowing my passion to help improve all of our emotional well-beings, you know, it was an immediate, yes, I'm, I'm going to be an investor. And so I'm seeing these technologies that are helping in terms of behavioral health as well. So, and, and clearly it's tied into social media and an app, right? Yep. <laughs> the app that he's built is mobile. And so however I can have them all synergistically tied together to leverage is good use of my time. So I want to ask you about a, an observation of your peer group. And we talk about some of the statistics you gave us are about behavioral health challenges for adults too. 
What are the behavioral health challenges showing up for leaders right now? When you observe the leaders of organizations, community leaders, how are they doing coming out of the pandemic? Well, you know, I think uh, everyone is much more aware of the effects of COVID and a pandemic and isolation. And I think uh, more so than not, the shortage of labor force uh, is one of the, I think, outcomes of, you know, emotional well-being. Mm-hmm. I don't have the statistics to, to back this up, but just anecdotally, when you think about what we went through in terms of the pandemic and uh, rethinking lifestyle, you know, family, uh, commuting, the kind of job that may have more or less stress in your life, uh, I think... All of these things are top of mind for the CEOs of organizations that are trying to retain talented workforce and recruit talented workforce. And, you know, we're seeing a huge number of folks that have left the workforce for lots of different reasons. And, and so how does creating an environment that is supportive of a healthy emotional well-being to increase productivity, which is what corporate CEOs always looking to do, you know, how can that tie in to providing a better return for their investors? So I think behavioral health is the foundation of lots of things, right? I mean, it's the core, you know, there are missed work days uh, for, I mean, mental health days was not a term that was used 20 years ago. Right. We're seeing a lot of that today in terms of the, the environment or the venue of where you're working, whether it's from home or at the office. What are the pros and cons? I mean, I don't think we all have the answer yet, but uh, I believe that folks are really thinking hard in terms of what's the environment that it's best for their their staff and their coworkers. Yeah, and it's it's so different. We we hear it um, in a lot of different ways. First of all, the great resignation is a real thing. It's fascinating. We, we happen to be in a position where a lot of the people we work with are in transition. They're moving from one job to the next, or they're transitioning to retirement, or whatever it might be, and there have been so many phone calls in the last year where it's not, I'm thinking about changing jobs. It's, I just quit my job. Now I'm <laughs> going to think about what I'm going to do. Right. It's just, it, it, which is a, a fascinating development. And I think it's a, a product of the times. But also when you think about parents or people who are in the parenting years, the high growth years in career and everything else, I heard an observation from one parent where they said, my kids came to me and said, they don't like it when I work from home because it's a reminder of things not being normal. Oh. And I'd never thought about that. Something feels amiss when mom or dad is working out of the living room or something like that. And it's showing up in so many disparate ways. It's hard to generalize, really. Yeah, Dennis, so I'm, I'm a parent of an, a current teenager, and I think she'd rather just have me out of the house. I don't know if it's kind of reminding. Oh, yeah. Maybe that's what that smart teenager said to the parent, but yeah, I yeah. didn't <laughs> want me overseeing everything she did and what time she woke up. <laughs> That's exactly, exactly. (laughs) You and I have talked about sources before and and inputs. How do you stay on top of the issues of the day? What are your sources? Are you a reader? Are are you a podcast listener? What what do you do to kind of stay on on top of things? And how do you filter out the noise? I am a news junkie, I confess. Um, I actually keep CNBC on all day. I listen to it in the car Whenever I'm in the car, uh, I get news alerts from New York Times, Wall Street Journal, CNN, uh, Newsbreak. I get news alerts on my phone. I read uh, the local news 
organizations and, and keep abreast of that. Generally, though, my day is uh, deleting emails. It is very, it's, it's very difficult for, for me to stay on top of my emails. And so I, I would say I'm, I'm an email jail inmate because it is, it's just trying to keep up. I, I, can, I do not aspire to have my emails be at zero ever. So inbox zero is not a goal. No, no, (laughs) no, it would be unrealistic. And I would then be depressed because I would never reach it. (laughs) Tell me a little bit about just the marketing part side of your degree. How, how does that show up today for you? How do you think about marketing and communication and, and storytelling? My marketing degree was implemented really well when uh, I was in the cable television business because I worked with the Viacoms, the Warner Brothers, uh, and then you know now it's Time Warner, all the largest producers. I was actually looking the other day at an article where in 83, I was part of the launch of pay-per-view at the same time of a theatrical release. And it was the Pirates of Penzance. And, you know, I was interviewed by Variety and a whole bunch of, you know, industry leaders or industry publications back then. Because now look what happened this year or this year, or was it last year, where Disney introduced a movie on streaming at the same time as a theatrical release. Mm-hmm. Or I'm, I'm sorry, the Disney Channel. And so you're seeing the evolution from 20 years ago and what was tried 20 years ago now to today. So back to your question, though, my marketing uh, degree really came to um, full use when we were launching some of these newest channels, like the Comedy Channel, like MTV, like ESPN, and I was uh, doing contract negotiations in terms of business models. You know, my view of marketing is, and this is the old fashion view, it's not the same anymore, but it was the four P's, price, product, Uh, promotion and distribution place. And so I view marketing as encompassing everything in terms of consumer and business to business success, because if you don't have the right product, marketing is not going to help it, right? And if it's not priced right, it's not going to help you get it out the door. So, you know, my marketing background, I think, has provided great insight in my angel investment decisions. Because then I can ask the right questions in terms of how these brilliant startup CEOs and entrepreneurs plan to scale and grow fast. And usually a lot of that is branding, it's distribution, it's pricing. You know, I just thought that there's probably, and you're exactly right to talk about the, the scale and the, and the growth side of it, because I think there's almost a fifth P now, which is pace. Someone said to me once that it's not so much the, the, the rate of change that's sped up, it's the rate of adoption that people are used to. I mean, kind of like pay-per-view. These things have been out there for some time. They just weren't generally accepted. Like at-home delivery of groceries existed pre-pandemic, but the adoption rate just skyrocketed. And you just have to be there to catch lightning in a bottle. And then suddenly, kaboom. And marketing plays a big role. Are you, are you prepared to tell your story when your story matters? That's exactly right. First of all, you know, people try different things and they've tried different things over the past. Uh, the Pirates of Penzance theatrical release at the same time as pay-per-view uh, was not successful. And I put it down as uh, the reason is that the Pirates of Penzance movie is not the same as Star Wars episode number 22 that 
there's a huge fan base with already. Right. So, you know, seeing a Pirates of Penzon musical in a movie release was not necessarily the content that would drive people, uh, would drive a huge audience to begin with, right? It, it was already, you know, something that uh, was uncertain. It wasn't a big, giant, you know, you can bet on it's going to be a huge blockbuster. You know, people make assumptions and, you know, it's, it's interesting now what we've learned from something like that. So what are you working on now? Tell me a, a recent project. You talked about your angel investing uh, projects and, and investing in behavioral health. What are some skills that you feel you're developing now that are just very of, of the moment here in 2021? Oh, I'm working on a lot of things. I think I have business ADD. I need to simplify more. <laughs> um, I'm very excited about my role at Team Pennsylvania. Okay. Team Pennsylvania is a public-private partnership that brings together uh, the private companies and the private sector and Commonwealth with the public sector. And it opens up the doors for the private sector to be able to talk to these agency heads and have access to providing feedback for policy that might be important to, to your industry. And so I think that's going to be a, uh, something you'll hear more about from me anyway, in terms of promoting why it's important for us to invest in our commonwealth, you know, and, and one of the missions is innovation. So where does innovation come into play? Well, that's another area that I am working on, and that is constantly looking at how we can invest in our entrepreneurial ecosystem here in Pennsylvania so that we can have job growth and job opportunity and attract workers and, and uh, you know, have folks you know, move here and live here and spend money here. That's another area where, you know, everything's intersecting. If I, if we, if I can impact and advocate that innovation and entrepreneurialism and small business growth is going to be the key to economic success in anywhere you live, that's going to be a win in my book. And so one of my goals is to promote innovation, entrepreneurial efforts and business startups and help businesses succeed. And clearly, if you can have the Commonwealth um, make it more attractive and easier for folks to hire people, retain people, uh, to have investment in these startups, then I think all our communities will win. And so that's an area of passion. You know, you asked me for one. No, I don't have <laughs> community relations that, you know, the Leo Valley Health Network, uh, community relations efforts in terms of helping us be a healthier community. I mean, everyone, I, I always like to say that once you're inside a hospital, we're all the same because that gown doesn't tie really tight in the back. So we all have to walk against the wall uh, when we have that gown on, if we ever get admitted in the hospital, it doesn't matter how, you know, affluent or, or not affluent you are, or what, what race you are or what gender you are. We're all the same when we're in that hospital. The hospital gown is the great equalizer. <laughs> exactly. And so uh, promoting behavioral health and resources and making change. You know, I like to look at places where there's the biggest gap, where it's so obvious mm -hmm. to that, you know, a little bit of incremental help will make a big change. And so that's where I see behavioral health change, uh, having a huge resource gap. You know, the, the amount that payers... Um, reimburse health networks and providers for behavioral health is a big issue. You know, we're, we're implementing more telehealth services for behavioral health, which is a big issue. And that's great. 
Uh, and then the innovation ecosystem, you know, that I'm always keeping an eye out for in terms of good investments and on panels to help entrepreneurs pitch and build their models or, or you know, change their models so that they can scale or see where the, the weaknesses and strengths of their business models are. That's helpful as, you know, I sit with uh, the Office of Economic Development in Pennsylvania, uh, you know, and then with uh, PBS as a voice, all of this comes together so that as I'm doing one thing, it also helps something else. I guess that's how I'm trying to leverage my time. There, there you <laughs> go. Well, that's, it makes sense. And it's, it's interesting you talk about just where are the gaps, because that's initially how our paths crossed is for, for my wife and I, we live in the third largest population center in Pennsylvania, and there was no children's hospital. And we had 10 years ago talked to somebody at the hospital and said, if there's ever an initiative to do this, we would be very interested. And we had no business, you know, raising our hand for that. But so many years later, suddenly there's an initiative and now there's a Riley Children's Hospital here in our community. And that was just a massive gap. That's something that would be meaningful for us to be involved with and we can be advocates for, and it's been our adopted cause. Right. My recommendation to anyone that's listening, if they want to make an impact, use your voice. Yes. That's the most important thing that you have. You know, use your voice, use your talent. You know, if you have treasure, that's always helpful to organizations to share your treasures and contribute to some of the, the community nonprofits that are in the area. Um, but, you know, using your voice is really important. And I think your work with Team PA is very important, too, because that's the leading indicator of the next generation of community leaders. Because if we're bringing in entrepreneurs, if there are people who are bringing their successful businesses into our community, into our commonwealth, then that leadership is inevitably translates into leadership at, at Lehigh Valley Hospital or PBS 39 or other places where they uh, where their expertise is needed, their experience, their treasure is needed. Right. And my work with Broad Street Angels affects it too, because the Broad Street Angels are primarily based in Southeast Pennsylvania in the Philadelphia market. Uh, however, it's very strong that you know, our area, the Southeast anyway, is very strong in life sciences, entrepreneurship. So there are a lot of life science, bioscience entrepreneurs that are, are looking and pharmaceutical yes. uh, related uh, companies that are really looking to uh, get their their studies and their research out the door and adopted uh, for, for, for the greater good, right? It's, it's to help, help solve an issue, solve a problem. All right. So I'm going to close with, with one thing here. Some, uh, somebody wise once told me that there are five aspects of, of life uh, that you have to monitor and, and make sure you're, you're staying on top of. It's the professional, health, family, spiritual, and then recreation. You've got a lot of irons in the fire, a lot of different projects. What's the recreational side? What do you do for fun? Oh, let's see. Should I admit that I day trade for fun? No, that <laughs> there is not a conversation that comes up without crypto or something. <laughs> oh, right. That's exactly right. I have some crypto. Uh, that's, 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 it's a now, great... has your day trading accelerated in the pandemic? Have, have you kind of, it's because it's become a thing again. It's 1999 all over, right? So over the last year, the pandemic has uh, held me uh, learning day trading. I'm, I'm a newbie. Oh. So I, I chalk all my losses to education. Just there, so you know. go. there you go. You can buy that story. Uh, and then also in my spare time, when I can, I've taken up golf. Have you? Well, with the pandemic as well, that was one of the only things you could do. It's the thing you can do. That was something that I, I started doing. And then I follow and I've, I'm learning a lot about horse jumping, hunter jumpers, and equestrian. 
So, you know, if I can also say that to your listeners out there, never stop learning. I mean, over the last year, three years, I've learned golf, day trading, and all about equestrian hunter jumping. I like to say I have too many hot dogs on my grill. My memory, just like a memory card and computer, right, is finite. Our brains are, I, I don't know if they're finite. Well, I guess there's a lot more research, but wow, my brain, I wish it was way bigger. Wow. I, I love to take you up new things in the pandemic. And that's something you and I both have in common. In the last year, I've learned how to ride horseback as well. Not not, oh, a, not, not a question. More more Western, <laughs> more Western style. I bought a cowboy hat, if that tells you anything. So... Uh, <laughs> Now, yeah, exactly. And then also I learned how to surf in the pandemic, which was an odd thing. I learned that having a high center of gravity, not so good when you're trying to learn how to surf. <laughs> That's great. Problematic. Well, horses are a wonderful uh, emotional benefit too. And, and my favorite place is the Houston Rodeo. Oh, so. oh, wow. Wow. I might be a Northeast girl, but I like, I love the Houston Rodeo too. That's fun. That's fun. Very good. Well, Sue, really appreciate you uh, you coming on. Thank you for joining us for the conversation. I think this is so valuable for, for anyone who's kind of wondering how to give back, how to get involved, to raise their hand and really participate in the life of their community. And thanks for all that, that you are doing and continue to do. Uh, to benefit the Lehigh Valley and, and abroad. Thanks for having me, Dennis. I'm I'm so grateful that you're doing this to help share your words. That's fun. It's great. Thank you very much. And enjoy and hope to catch up with you soon. Thanks. Morton Brown Family Wealth is an SEC registered investment advisor. More information is available at our website, www.mortonbrownfw.com.